Hello and welcome to the Library Cafe. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm delighted to have on the program James Mundy, Anne Hendricks Bass, director of the Francis Lehman Loeb Arts Center here at Vassar College. James is retiring from the Arts Center this summer after, is it 29 years or 28 years? 28. 28 years, a long time. And we're going to be talking about the exhibition that showcases the acquisitions of the center spanning this time, as well as about James's life at Vassar, both as an employee and as a student of the class of 1974, same year I graduated myself, <laughs> actually. So the exhibition is entitled An Era of Opportunity, Three Decades of Acquisitions, and uh, that exhibition will be on view through September 8th, so it'll be up all summer. Welcome back, James. Thank you, Don. First, I thought maybe we could talk about the exhibition. Of course, this is a selection from a much larger body of gifts and purchases the center has acquired over your time here. Correct. Almost doubling of the collection that's occurred in this period. It is, and the selection in the exhibition, the works that have been brought out of storage are mostly prints and drawings, so that's where they live. The other part of the exhibition is the permanent collection, and many of the works that were acquired during my time here went directly into the permanent installation, and those works are identified with a small icon. Uh-huh. So it's, in a sense, two exhibitions uh-huh. at once. Even though this is a sort of small selection, I don't know how many works are in the exhibit, there is a checklist, and it's not all that large. Uh, it's, it's roughly 90. And the larger number of items you've acquired over this time, over these almost 30 years now, is in the thousands, yes? I mean, it's close to 10,000. 10,000, good heavens. So the thing about the show, however, is you get a sense that the works are almost bursting out of the galleries. There's so many. I mean, you get a sense of plethora. Not just in terms of number, but in terms of quality. And it gives an impression of compendiousness and uh, the uh, bountifulness, I think, also of our donors. So, you know, the question comes up, is this plethora and is this quality of especially the gifted works in the show uh, indicative in some way of the tastes and education of our alums? I think it is. And I've always thought that Vassar has been very fortunate to first be able to educate its students well in the history of art and culture, and that so many of them have been themselves fortunate enough to go on and have the means to assemble fine collections. And Uh a lot of that collecting drew on their experiences as students at Vassar and their fine education. So the fact that at some point later in life they decide to return the favor Mm -hmm. and offer gifts to Vassar essentially makes it easier to teach the next generation with an even higher quality of original works of art. So it's a cycle that has played out over many years and continues to push the envelope of excellence. A sort of virtuous circle in Mm -hmm. a way. So this circle goes back some time. I mean, it isn't just that you had a great education in the 70s, but it's the older donors also. I mean, we've been teaching our history for a long time. And also, does the education at Vassar, and especially our historical education, shape the collection in a way? I mean, I know this, of course, and anyone would, that in the permanent collection even, we have a larger than average ratio of female artists. So I'm guessing that our... Alums tend to collect female artists from the time when we were at an all-women's college. I think some of that is certainly the case anecdotally. I mean, we yeah. haven't made a study yeah, yes. of, of such things, but it would give the impression that certainly women artists 
have been recognized yeah. and sought by Vassar collectors and also by the museum itself uh-huh. uh, through purchases. We have purchased work while I've been here by women artists. A collection really grows in fits and starts. Mm-hmm. And about once a generation, you get a kind of kick in the pants mm-hmm. in some direction. So you can kind of chart that with Vassar over the years. If you began with the Magoon collection, the original collection in the 1860s, mm-hmm. then you have to wait uh, quite a while for the next major gift. Yeah. But that comes in the 1940s mm-hmm. with the Warburg collection yeah. of prints and some sculpture. Then you have the Stieglitz material that came to us all in one fell swoop mm-hmm. in the 60s. The Dove, the Hartleys, the um, Marins, the O'Keeffe's, etc. And then I think the next big moment was when we acquired the Deutsch collection mm-hmm. of post-war European and American artists and it was only 13 works, but they were all first rate and they just transformed the modern collection of Vassar, Miro, Baltus, Pollock, Gorky, you name it. It's this idea of a collection getting a sudden infusion. Uh And if you are there long enough, many fields will be filled in in Uh this way Uh by the gifts Uh of this nature. And uh, so you have to look at it with a long view. You have to look at filling in the collection incrementally as these other things uh, basically wait their moment in terms of the big push. Interesting. So your relation then with our alums, I mean, it's always been good. One gets a sense you had a really beautiful little talk at the uh, opening of the uh, Innes Nathaniel Walker show about Pat O'Brien Parsons and your experiences with her. So can you talk about your experience with our alums? (laughs) Just an opening, I mean. Yeah, it extends over many years. uh And there have been some wonderful people who I've come in contact with during the, that period. Vassar alums have always been, and I think this is especially true of the gritty ladies of the classes of the 1940s especially, uh, they've always been very independent-minded uh-huh. and strong-willed in different ways. And they know what they like, mm-hmm. and that extends to what they like about their alma mater. Mm-hmm and what they don't like about the yeah. <laughs> And so it is hoped for that one can establish good relationships with the alums. It doesn't always happen yeah. that way because, as I said, strong opinions yeah. tend to um, be difficult to field yeah. at, at certain moments. But I must say that those dedicated collectors from the 40s, uh, Lynn Strauss, for example, who was class of 46, and her husband, both of them were just just lovely to work with yeah. over the years and just very, very kind. And as with many couples, had divided loyalties. Uh-huh. She went to Vassar, he went to Harvard. They collected extensively, especially the work of Edvard Munch, paintings and prints, mm-hmm. and also other modernist and some old master works. So Harvard will get the Munch material uh-huh. Uh-huh. that was promised to them. And we have received a number of the other works, including a couple of monks, actually. 
and you know they kind of worked it that way, which was yeah. nice. But this sense of of a couple having these divided loyalties, often it's Yale yeah. and Nasser. Yeah. In this case, it was Harvard and Nasser. Is just the way it is. But they've been been great to work with, and and people like Marion Pollock, another member of the class of the 1940s, she who is a collector in, in the Chicago area, has been very, very loyal and has promised us mm-hmm. some very nice things. But she was on the Board of Trustees oh. of the Art Institute oh. of Chicago as well. Uh-huh. So we will divide like a collection there. Rivalry, yeah. It seems yeah. we divide collections a lot with yeah. other people. Uh-huh. I mentioned, I think, at, at the talk at the opening during the question and answer period that we were once called upon to divide with the Newberger Museum at the State University of New York at Purchase, we were called upon to divide a collection that was left to both of us. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. it was being housed at the Newberger Museum. And so one Saturday morning, I drove down there, and the director there and I went into the storage area, and we flipped a coin, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and we chose sides, uh-huh. as uh-huh. it were. Yeah. Uh, they got the first we got the second, oh. and went back oh, and forth all morning that. until we divided the, the entire collection. Thing. The collection was interesting. Yeah. Did you take a U-Haul uh, down with it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we did no, that yeah. later. Okay. Yeah, we carefully separated things to different corners. So the question comes up, is there a vetting process that gifts have to go through? You know, so much of what we acquire is by gift. For instance, does accession require a sort of decision by a collections committee of some kind, the way it does in certain places? I know the National Museum... Women in the Arts has a committee, so if you give them something, they've got to sit down, and it takes a little time. We have a collections committee, and it's a subcommittee of our advisory board. Uh It is composed of mostly museum professionals, Mm -hmm. uh, many of whom have a Vassar degree in their their backgrounds. But also, there's a member of the board of trustees on the committee, and a collector as well. So... That exists, but that exists primarily to review the purchases uh, oh, I see. that we make yeah. over a certain threshold, uh-huh. that we have discretion up to a certain number, and after that, a work has to come to the committee to be reviewed, and they make a recommendation. Mm-hmm. It's not a strict approval process because this group has no fiduciary responsibility. That's up to the Board of Trustees. So they make a recommendation to the dean and to the president Uh who will approve the expenditure. Now, when it comes to gifts, this committee reviews gifts on an annual basis after they've been made. And if there seems to be a problem with what they are seeing, then this will come up in conversation with myself and and with the staff and even the dean. So it's not a case-by-case approval but a regular review to see if there's something that might be better done in terms of accepting gifts. For example, in one case, I know a couple of the members of the committee were concerned that we were accepting too many Native American works from a collector of this material that were being chosen by him and not by us. Uh So each year he'd say, I'm going to give you this. And they rightly brought that up as something where we didn't seem to really be exercising much yeah. uh, judgment or yeah. control. Yeah. Uh, we did feel having Native American work in the collection 
was important, mm -hmm. but having no curator yeah. with the uh, expertise yeah. on staff, yeah. or even anyone really uh, in the art department with this kind of specialty, we were at the mercy of this collector. Uh -huh. and so after all, we had to step it down a yeah. bit, and I don't think he took that news very well, uh -huh. but that was the way it was, and, and uh, I remember some very sharp things being said <laughs> by certain members of the committee yeah. about this work uh -huh. as it entered uh -huh. the collection. Yeah, interesting. So that's the review process, but ordinarily is it your curators then that decide whether something probably should be acquired and would recommend it? Yeah, yeah. it's a team effort. That yeah. is, the curators will find things, I will find things, they will come to me with recommendations, yeah. we'll discuss, and you know, even though we've acquired so many works over the last 28 years, we do say no occasionally, yeah, yeah. and it's never easy. Uh -huh. uh, one particular moment, which we've had several of over the years, has been the bequest that has come to us without any previous conversation. Uh -uh. So one day you get a call from a lawyer's office yeah. saying, you've been given all these things uh -huh. by X, who has just passed away, and we're going to ship them up, give us your address. <laughs> yeah. At that point, you say, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, haven't, yeah. we haven't really discussed this. We don't know what these things are. Uh -huh. And possibly from the list you just sent us, I'm not sure that we want them. And this is something which a lawyer very often just cannot process. No. You know, how could you not want something yeah. for free? Yeah, nor could the donor often. They, people assume that because you're getting something for free, you, you have some place to put it and uh, right. are happy to take care of it, yes. And the best, the best cases of that kind are when you actually do have preliminary conversations yeah. with donors yeah. and it's established ahead of time. Yeah. They know what you want and you know what they're likely yeah, to Yeah, it helps. Well, e even in the case of your giving my library some of your library because you're moving, <laughs> it helped immensely to have a list of what you had so that I didn't have to take the whole gift and then find homes for everything else. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm happy, yeah. happy about that, too. <laughs> yeah. And then there was an instance that comes to mind fairly recently. There was a Franz von Stuck that was up for sale that you were hoping to purchase and you involved the faculty, you, you, you know, you show the painting, we had, actually had it on approval for a bit. Mm -hmm. It ended up in the Getty. There aren't very many von Stucks in the country. It would have been quite an acquisition, but we decided against it and that wasn't your decision only, <laughs> was it? No, so. I, no, I was advocating yeah. very strongly that we acquire this yeah. work, which was not inexpensive. It yeah. was a very expensive yeah. painting. Yeah. So in this process, this review process, I made my best case to acquire this work. And one member of the committee who was not a art museum professional and knew something about the history of art, but yeah. not a lot, yeah. did some internet searching yeah. uh -huh. on Franz von Schuch. Yeah. And the first thing he, his eyes lit upon were references to Stuck being Hitler's favorite, favorite artist. artist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, there. <laughs> and at that point, you know, he, he didn't go much further. Yeah. It was a time when the so-called campus climate yeah. was very much upset and directed by a certain opposition between 
groups supporting Palestine and uh-huh. groups supporting Israel. Uh-huh. And so this particular individual thought this was much too delicate a topic uh-huh. for suddenly a work of art at great expense to be acquired that was tainted by this reference to... Yeah, the, the painting was a symbolist painting, basically. It was uh, a symbolist? With a, with a dragon or a snake and yeah. a maiden, sort of. Yeah, it was yeah, kind yeah, of a... Yeah, a yeah. Typical. Uh, uh, St. George-style yeah, 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 yeah. Um, mytholo- mythological painting, uh-huh. very symbolist in nature, a uh, great big uh, serpent yeah. that had been <laughs> defeated by this yeah, knight. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it was a, a powerful picture. Yeah. And so, as it turned out, I think everyone got cold feet about Uh, making this acquisition. The president of the college, who had the final say about it, and it was one that got away. Uh, And it was subject to, I think, some knowledge, a little knowledge being a dangerous thing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So I I pointed out at the time that, you know, Hitler's favorite artist was Vermeer. Yeah, uh, and that's what I really wanted okay. to okay. steal from all the museums in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And, that's and, true. We did collect Vermeers eventually. Really. So yeah, I mean, so, it, it yeah. was it was an absurd idea to begin with because yeah. the background is that Hitler was an art student yes, yeah. at the time when people like Stuck were the most popular yeah. painters in Europe. Yeah, and so something being a favorite is all very relative. Yeah. But any art student being trained in Vienna or in Munich or wherever would have known Hans von Schuch. This is an important artist, and sure. His, and yeah. his work. Yeah, so interesting. So when you talk about purchases, some of our purchases are out of an acquisitions budget, but we also get gifts for purchases, don't we? Yeah, we do occasionally. Funds will be given with the idea that something will be acquired yeah, with them. So there's a sense there, I suppose, that we have the intelligence to know what we want and... and yeah, for the most part. I mean, yeah. sometimes the gift is made with a strong recommendation that it be directed at a certain field. Yeah, uh-huh. well, that, that makes sense, yeah. So then, you know, that helps qualify yeah. your focus a bit. And so we get, sometimes we get money without those conditions. Sometimes it is conditional, and sometimes it is uh, to establish an endowment. Uh, uh. Yeah. which then provides funds yeah. on a regular basis. Yeah. The show downstairs gives you credit for all these acquisitions over these 28 years, in a sense. I mean, it's about you and your time here. Uh, yeah. But you didn't actually, of course, shape the collection entirely yourself. But you do have an influence, don't you, over the whole shape of the whole thing as we move forward, in terms of acquisitions, anyway. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what being the artistic director is about. Uh-huh. You shape a program, yeah. whether... You know, it's a symphony orchestra, yeah, exactly, or yeah. an uh-huh. opera, or uh-huh. a ballet, uh-huh. yeah. or an art museum, and the nature of the program, whether it's the exhibition program or the acquisition program, will reflect your worldview in different ways. I mean, you're right. The things in the exhibition include works that just happen to be donated yeah. to us during yeah. my well, watch, yeah, sure. and I didn't necessarily have that much control over those yeah. things except to accept them or not. Other things in terms of our purchases mm-hmm. over the years had much more an extension of my thoughts about what the collection needed 
to serve its mission mm -hmm. as supporting the cultural education of the Vassar students. Yeah. In other words, things that fill gaps in the collection, mm -hmm. things that speak to quality in terms of the conceptual process or the execution that can be used as great examples to teach our students with. Yeah. And this is what all museums should do because all museums are engaged in education uh -huh. in some form or other. Um, so the, the question of the so-called teaching collection or teaching uh -huh. museum, which I think many of us find slightly offensive because it suggests lower quality, uh -huh. but some kind of functionality that you can find in a work that, that itself is perhaps uh, low in quality. And so that's not a fair assessment. And I've often countered that reference to, oh, Vassar has a great teaching, teaching collection. collection yeah. Say, you know, really, no. one of the best teaching collections is at the Metropolitan yeah. Museum. <laughs> because yes, you can yes, learn yes, a yes, lot sure, by sure, going sure, to the Metropolitan sure, Museum. Yeah. Or the Louvre. Yeah, you know, yeah, excellent yeah. teaching collection. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, I used that phrase thinking I was complimenting her institution with Francesca Consagra when she showed me around the Blanton Museum one day. And she really bristled and explained to me that she didn't conceive of uh, the Blanton as a teaching museum and, that, uh, right, right. and told me why. So I don't use that phrase anymore. <laughs> well, I know that, but uh, no, it was, it was, yeah. it was praising with faint damnation. Yeah. <laughs> or so, so in that light, you're collecting because you're aware, of course, that the collection has a function and that function is educational. But you must have then a wider idea of what the collection is culturally. I mean, is, is a question I suppose I, I'm, I'm leaning into is, is there an ideal in your mind that you bring to bear when you think about shaping the collection generally, uh, apart from just sort of filling in historical gaps? Or, uh, well, this raises a very complicated question as far as I'm concerned, yeah. and one where I am distinctly, I think, in the minority. And that is that I do not believe in the wish list. Uh -huh. It's okay to assemble one because it makes you think about the collection, yeah. but it's not a roadmap. Uh -huh. And you're not a stamp collector. You, know, uh -huh. you, are, you are there to maximize the moment in the marketplace uh -huh. and to respond to it with all of your background, your experience, your exposure to works of art. And if you are just guided by such a thing as a list, and you go into the marketplace yeah. trying to pick off yeah. the various things on your list, you're going to end up with a very mediocre collection. Uh, yeah. You have to be ready to see something and say, oh my god, this should be at the top of my list. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about it when I assembled the list because yeah. I had no idea yeah. it it's was out there. So the market is part of a sort of creative process in a way. Um, it should be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's reality that you're working with. Uh, uh, absolutely it? true. Yeah. And the exhibition is called an era of opportunity. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And yeah. it is that opportunity that you have to be able to recognize. Yeah. So it's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell and his theories about spending 10,000 hours doing something to become good at it. If you spend the 10,000 hours working with original works of art, looking at original works of art of all kinds, and that's tens of thousands of works of art, eventually you can make 
discerning judgments uh-huh. about things, yeah. and you will recognize the opportunity when it presents itself. And I'll give you a, a perfect example. The 12th century Limoges enamel Eucharistic dove that yes. we acquired two years ago is one of 40 in the world. It is one of six in American museums. I had absolutely no idea it would ever be on the market, so therefore it never had a place on a wish list. But when it uh-huh. appeared, it was a no-brainer in a sense, uh-huh. as long as we could afford to chase it at auction, that this is something of tremendous individual quality and usefulness uh-huh. to what we do, yeah. and let's go for it. Yeah. But you don't know it until you see it, and then it goes to the top of your list. Yeah. And that's the exceptional opportunity, and yeah. that's what always has to be protected as you know, you assemble this thing. People want you to have lists. Uh-huh. They want you to yeah. have this oh, yeah, plan. Sure. Yeah. It's part of a corporate concept that you, yeah, thinking. Exactly. You know, it's yeah. like the five-year plan. I'll get yeah. this, this, and this. <laughs> and it doesn't work that way except in the contemporary market uh-huh. where you can tick off yeah. the Ross Bleckner or the yeah. Yeah. Jasper Johns. And now, it reminds me a bit of Harry Spiel he'll give sometimes about sculpting and about being an artist and just teaching art. That if a student believes that he or she can sit down and just conceive of what they're going to do and then execute that conception, they're not making art. The material that they're working with is going to be pushing them back against that concept and, and seeing, engaging that concept in a way that makes the work of art on the back and forth. And uh, so what you're telling me in a way is that you have to be a kind of artist to be able to do this yourself. Huh? Yeah. There's a very creative side to yeah. it. Yeah, sure. And there is a, a side that responds to the, the moment. Uh-huh. And you know, some people call it the aha moment yeah. or whatever you want to know, the SSS moment. But it is that confluence of, as I said, experience and exposure and assessment on the spot that has a work basically sing to you. And it sounds like hocus pocus to some people. But, you know, I worked for, when I was a, a curator, I worked for a director who was very much of the wish list uh-huh. frame of uh-huh. mind. And I just couldn't adjust to it. He could, because yeah. his view was yeah, contemporary. Sure, yeah. But I just couldn't. Yeah. So opportunities do come along. Uh, one opportunity that came along while you were director was, we spoke about her, Pat Parsons' uh, offer of outsider art that we ended up developing a wonderful collection from. Was that a matter of opportunity? I mean, had you been a big fan of outsider art until she came along. So the question there is, did you develop your own tastes and interests? And then the tastes and interests of the collection through your exposure to this person who dealt in outsider art and herself. Because the curators told me that this would never have happened if this hadn't been for James. I couldn't have done this just on my own. Yeah. Well, it has a, a longer story in a sense. Pat was always very devoted to this field. Uh-huh. And outsider art during the late 20th century was something that was hotly debated among museums, whether it should be uh-huh. in a museum collection or not. Yeah. And it's still a question. To some extent. Yeah. The place where I worked before I came to Vassar, the Milwaukee Art Museum, had not only a great collection of outsider art, mm-hmm. and the director there also collected it himself, oh but it also had a great collection of Haitian painting. 
uh. which itself is, is a self-taught school of, of artists. So I was prepared to understand Pat and her interests. Uh -huh. And she, when we first met, told me about Vassar never being interested in what she uh -huh. collected because of the tastes and interests of, yeah. of past yeah. directors. And so she just didn't force anything on uh -huh. Vassar and was giving everything to the Folk Art Museum yeah. in New York. And I, at that point, tried to say, well, now we are, uh -huh. because this is a field that can be very rich for the teaching of our students. Yeah, it gives a changing curriculum. Uh, in uh, terms uh, of sociology, yeah. in terms of anthropology, yeah. Yeah. psychology. The chair of the art department is teaching yeah. a seminar on quilts, and it's a very popular class. So, yeah. so that helped turn things around. Unfortunately, by then, Pat had given many of her best oh, things away yeah, to yeah, the folk art museum. But after that, we developed a good relationship and a trusting one that went on for quite a few years and she made gifts and then when she died she made bequests uh -huh. and yes it definitely changed things it opened up a new field where we did have some expertise yeah uh, unfortunately in a lot of these other fields uh -huh. we don't and that's where uh -huh. we're flying blind yeah. if we try to make significant acquisitions yeah. in a field where there's no curator or faculty yeah. member yeah. with that in his or her yeah, yeah. portfolio. Yeah, so f faculty can add to your curatorial body of knowledge in a sense of, you know, for, for this kind of thing, for acquisition, we, so, apart from use. So, and we yeah. depend on faculty who are uh, very object-oriented. Yeah. Uh, this was true with our collecting of Japanese art. Ah. That yeah. the faculty member who was here, Andy Watsky, was very object-oriented. Yeah. And he and I developed a nice relationship in terms of taking me to school yeah. in uh, this field yeah. and helping me, yeah. even after he left, make acquisitions with a certain amount of uh, confidence. And I can point out another example. We have an Alfred Jensen painting mm -hmm. downstairs that was recommended to me by Peter Charlap, mm -hmm. uh -huh. the, the painter in the yeah. studio department. And Jensen was a real as they say, artist, artist. Yeah. He was he uh -huh. flew under the radar yeah. of many collectors and museums. And so we bid on this work at auction and got it very, very reasonably. Yeah. And it was thanks to the inspiration and the referral from a faculty yeah, member. Yeah, faculty member, a studio faculty in this case. Yeah, yeah. interesting. And it made a lot of sense to yeah. get it. Yeah, great. And did you have an interest in Japanese art before Andy uh, came along? I mean, uh, must have been something there because, uh, you know, we sort of regard you as someone with a real interest in Japanese <laughs> art. And personally, you, you travel to Japan when you can. And, yeah. yeah. That came upon me rather suddenly did in it? 1998. Yeah. Oh, okay. When I made my first trip to Japan. Yeah. And it was to attend the opening of a museum on the island of Shikoku, uh -huh. one of the southern islands, that had assembled the thousand greatest works of Western art history in ceramic replica. It's called yeah. the Otsuka yeah. Museum of Art. And of course it's not really a museum, it's like a walk-in history of art textbook. So everything they have, painting, and what we went to them was the rights to our Mark Rothko that yeah. they wanted. 
And so our Rothko is reproduced you know, perfectly to the correct size on these ceramic boards. Uh -huh. And this technique is very good for decorating interiors of subway stations uh -huh. or the exteriors uh -huh. of apartment houses. Yeah. And you can actually impregnate the material with an image uh -huh. and uh -huh. even reproduce the impasto, the, uh -huh. the thick paint layers, yeah. oh. let's say, that Van Gogh might yeah. use or someone else. But it works best with artists who yeah. paint a little flatter. Anyway, so I went to that opening of the museum, my first trip to Japan, and it was at that point that my eyes were opened and I got very excited uh -huh. by what I saw. Uh -huh. And <clears throat> at the same time, Andy was doing a lot of teaching from originals and he kept coming to us saying, can we borrow these things from Harvard or Princeton so that I can use them in my class? And I thought at the time, well, that's a kind of cumbersome and also expensive process yeah. to ship things back and forth. Why don't we establish a certain plan for making acquisitions in this uh -huh. field? Uh -huh. And you and I can work together on yeah. this. And so that's uh, interesting. what led us yeah. to this point. And yeah. it, it was a nice yeah. collaboration for... You know, 15 years or so. Oh, yeah, great. So apart from opportunity knocking, in this case, in the guise of faculty and their interests and needs, influencing the way you know you, you develop your your own tastes and I, um, you have your own scholarly interests in Dutch and Flemish drawing especially and drawing as a genre. Well, there's not a simple answer to that. Yeah. I did my graduate work on early Flemish painting. Uh -huh. I wrote my dissertation on Gerard David the uh -huh. Rouge painter. Yeah. And after I started to teach at various places after getting my PhD, I started to get more involved with Italian uh -huh. material. And that led me eventually to focus on Italian drawings, uh -huh. especially the work of the 16th century artists. And so that's where I've been focused since. And after I retire, where I will continue to focus with various projects in this field, um, but Old Master Drawings has been where I settled uh -huh. after yeah. about 1985. Yeah. And it shows in the acquisitions downstairs in the exhibition. Uh, it does, and, and it's an area also where one can see incrementally the impact of making acquisitions, some of which are sort of against the curve, a bit, against the flow of general taste. So mm -hmm. a lot of what we've done with the 18th and early 19th century in Northern Europe has run counter to the market, and therefore we've been able to afford you know, more and better things. So collections are affected by the market, affected by faculty, affected to some extent by your own interest to start with. Are they affected by trends also? That seems to be a, a topic in the museum world at this stage. When tastes, public tastes are changing and the idea of a museum is changing to some extent. Museums are trying to draw crowds all over the place of young people that haven't the same tastes as, you know, possibly the older generations. So so I don't know if there's a question here, but does the fact that collections seem to be affected by this, are they evolving? And then do you have any thoughts about the future collection here in that light? i got to rephrase that question later, but that's okay. <laughs> well, I know what you're saying, yeah. and we have always been very conscious of 
not following changing fashions, fashions. Yes. Uh -huh. but if it's a long-term trend, yeah. then yes, we need to devote resources to yeah. it. Cultural trends, say. Yeah. And there, for example, I would cite once more the Asian uh -huh. yeah. area. Yeah. Asian studies became a much bigger thing at Vassar during the time I was here yeah. than it was previously. Yeah. And the art department had a you know, full-time Asian specialist for the first time yeah. in a very long time. And so this indicated to me a commitment, a long-term commitment by the college yeah. in this field. What I tried to avoid were very short-term fashions that might have been stimulated by one faculty member's course selection, who knows if that person would stay or go or yeah. change direction, and not be too driven by market research, yeah. I guess. Uh, uh. If the world is telling you today that everybody's interested in the art of the Latino barrios uh -huh. across the country, and then suddenly in a kind of knee-jerk, reflexive fashion, you start collecting this material hand over fist. And then the next decade, it's a different thing. Yeah. And so you become the follower mm -hmm. of the trends. Uh -huh. And while this may not be the way the future plays out, I've always felt that art museums also are charged with some leadership yeah. position in terms of taste yeah. and cultural selection and you just can't always be adjusting your focus to suit the present fad or fashion yeah, yeah, sure. and you have to absorb that into a much longer horizon yeah. and I think that now because museums feel as if they're in competition for leisure time hours uh -huh, and dollars yeah, uh -huh that they need to give the customer what the customer wants. Yeah, yeah. Walker Art Center has rock concerts every weekend in the summertime, so <laughs> out on the, on the sculpture garden. So, yeah. And, yeah, we're, we're doing yoga in the yeah, galleries, yeah, and yeah. we are responding to all kinds of societal needs. Yeah, well that's with, fine. With yeah, art collectors. That, yeah. And so it's, yeah. you know, it's the future, and, and this is why I don't want to opine on this, because yeah. I'm not going to be part of that future. Yeah. Uh -huh. That will be decided by right, the next director. Younger yeah. people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a large collection of Hudson River School painting downstairs, and we don't have an Americanist, a full-time tenure-track Americanist in the art department, which is somewhat sad at this juncture. That's not a problem of trends, I don't think, entirely, although it may be. A, well, it's yeah. a big question for us. Yeah. Do we use precious resources to continue to build the American 19th century uh -huh. collection, or the American collection yeah. at all? Or do we respond by doing nothing in this field yeah. after having done so yeah. much in this yeah. field? My next guest on the show is Dan Peck. I'm going to talk to him about the coal show that he has up mm -hmm. at the coal house up in, in Catskill. So. They have no choice. They have no choice. <laughs> no, they don't. They, so they have to collect show in this coal. Field. Yes, yeah, So do you have any favorite works down in the exhibition? I mean, uh, it must be difficult to, to ask you to choose. Uh, yes. Uh, you don't have to answer that, actually, if you, if you yeah. rather come I mean, to the exhibition. Yeah. After 28 years, you have favorite memories uh -huh. about acquisitions. Uh -huh. Yeah. And it's perhaps not fair to try to distinguish favorite works, but there were moments 
when I felt we were extraordinarily fortunate to be able to acquire things we did at the time. Uh -huh. yeah. And so they became favorites because I thought we got lucky either uh -huh. through a gift uh -huh. or a discovery of something. Yeah, it must be immensely satisfying, <laughs> you know, the sensation that you've acquired something that we really wanted to acquire. and that. They added to the collection, added to the college, actually. That part is extremely satisfying. Yeah. And I was joking with a local physician who I've known for a long time at the opening of the exhibition. And I said to him, you know, within a certain number of years, all those patients you did such good work with will be dead. Uh -huh. They will be around. Yeah. And all of my patients will continue, will continue <laughs> to, to be here, yeah. survive yeah. and to you know breathe, as yeah. it were, in this yeah. environment. So it's, as I said before, the incremental nature of collection building yeah. is much more satisfying than having produced for years and years great uh, exhibitions yes. that are here today and gone yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. That yeah. is very yeah. ephemeral. Yeah in a sense. You leave behind a publication very often and yeah. that's good. Yeah. But the real tangible yeah. result comes, comes in, yeah. from this collection. Yeah. You know, it does the permanent collection. Uh, so I thought maybe we'd switch to your time at Vassar, I mean apart from the exhibition, uh, to talk about the fact that you were an undergraduate here at Vassar. So the question is, why did you come here? And uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> It was really, again, a kind of happy accident. I grew up in Florida. Uh -huh. I went to the public schools yeah. in Sarasota, Florida. And I was fortunate that I went during my junior year in high school. I went on a European trip oh. with a group of students. And when I came back, I decided after having seen these magnificent monuments in Italy, mm -hmm. and Greece, and elsewhere, that I wanted to study art. And so the local art museum, the Ringling Museum yeah. of Art in Sarasota, Great museum, yeah. accepted me as an intern. Ah. And I would go there one day a week. The, the, my high school allowed a certain number of us to apprentice with different professions locally, stockbrokers, oh, you know, uh -huh. dentists, yeah. whatever oh. it was. And I chose the art museum so I could go one day a week and they would put me to work. And this museum at the time was open until 10 p.m. every night. Mm. So I had an after-school job uh -huh. working in a museum. Uh -huh. In the museum, oh, interesting. At the bookshop, selling tickets, yeah. you know, doing various things. So anyway, that's what made me decide to study art history. Uh -huh. The question then was where to go to study art history. Coming from the South, I had no consciousness really of Northeastern. Yeah educational institutions. Yeah. I was that naive. But I'd heard good things about the University of North Carolina uh -huh. at Chapel Hill. I applied there, got in as an out-of-state student, and within a short time realized this was not yeah. the place for me. It was still mentally in the 1950s, yeah. and I was just overwhelmed by the size of it. Our generation, things were changing, so you didn't want to be in the 1950s if you could avoid it. It was, it was very, very yeah. retarded in terms yeah. of its yeah. progress socially, culturally. Anyway, while I was there, I made a friend who had a sister who went to Vassar. Uh -huh. And one day I was in this fellow's dorm room, 
and he was studying materials because he was planning on transferring uh -huh. somewhere and he had the Vassar course catalog. Uh -huh. I picked it up and I looked through it. All this great art history art was being taught there. Yeah. And they were accepting boys. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so he said yes. So I applied, uh -huh. sight unseen. I'd never been to the campus, didn't take the tour, didn't talk yeah. to anybody. Uh -huh. I just based my decision on that. Whereas when I went to Chapel Hill, I'd done all the due diligence. Yeah. I had checked it out uh -huh. and oh yeah. It turned out it was a you know a terrible decision. So I was accepted and entered the class of graduating class of 1974 during my sophomore year. Mm -hmm. So I came a year late and in a sense the class of 74 was the first to have boys arrive as freshmen. Uh, uh -huh. and oh I see. Four years, uh -huh. yeah. There were a few transfer students yeah. before that beginning in 69. Yeah. So I joined this group who had already established the beachhead as it were yeah. and uh, was wildly happy here, uh -huh. and the program was very fulfilling, uh -huh. and so I left with even greater enthusiasm yeah. to study in advanced degrees yeah. in this field, and yeah. that's, that's how that happened. Yeah. So who did you work with? Uh, was Linda Nachlin here at the time? Linda Nachlin yeah. was here. I didn't work much with her besides yeah. taking her intermediate level survey courses in the 19th century. Did you have 105, 106? Uh, I did not. Oh, you got you got around the prerequisite. I, I got around the prerequisite. That's interesting. Yeah. And well, you had worked with the Ringling, so but uh, I, yeah. you know, I was kind of self-taught in a lot of ways, uh, and I yeah. had taken some courses at Chapel Hill, but I had tested out of their introductory artist uh -huh. course, and so I got credit for it in a sense. Oh, I see. Okay. And so then, yeah. So but, I, but this great Vassar experience, yeah. I never had. So you know, I worked with primarily Eugene Carroll uh -huh. in Renaissance. Yeah and a fellow named Francis Richardson, Frank Richardson, uh -huh. who taught Northern yeah. European yeah. art. Susan Koretsky's predecessor. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so those were the most influential. And Nikolai Sikovsky, who taught American art, uh -huh. and he was also the director of the then gallery, yeah. art gallery. Those were the, the most influential. Yeah. And then where did you do your graduate work? Uh, at Princeton. At Princeton. Uh, I see. So I, it was art class sent some good people to different programs. Uh -huh. um, we sent two to Yale, one to Princeton, a couple to NYU and Columbia. And so it was a pretty active group of art history students who went on to get yeah. other degrees. And then you taught at Mount Holyoke for a while? Yeah, my first job teaching after graduate teaching at Princeton was a one-year position at Northwestern University, uh -huh. filling in for somebody who was on the... In Chicago, or outside of Chicago, yeah. yeah. In uh, Evanston, yeah. Illinois. And then I went to Mount Holyoke, where I got a tenure-track position yeah. there, and so I was there for eight years, and then uh -huh. left and joined the Milwaukee Art Museum uh -huh. Uh -huh. as the chief curator uh -huh. there yeah. at a tender age. Yeah. And then it's one of those great kind of quiet museums like the Cleveland Museum that um, not everyone knows about, but that, yeah. yeah. And people had told me, or advisors had told me, that everybody wants to work in the Northeast, but everyone really should live and work in the Midwest for a certain part of their lives, uh -huh. and you'll find it much different. And yeah. when I taught at Northwestern and then came back to Milwaukee, 
I did, yeah. and I was very happy for that experience because mm-hmm. it was a different mindset about things. Yeah. Very positive, very can-do, yeah. very optimistic. Yeah. And so that advisor was right. Very interesting. I'm a Detroiter myself, so I know what, you, I know what you're talking <laughs> about. It's hard, hard to describe to people because there's a downside from being in the Midwest also. But, um, so I remember when you came to Vassar, the museum was brand new. So it was as though we were giving you a brand new car to drive in a way. So, I mean, uh, we had just made a transition from the art gallery to the Francis Lehman Love Art Center. The building was brand new. In fact, you, you came just a little before then, I think, right I, before we were finished. Um, I I spent two years here before the museum before, opened. Oh, okay. In Taylor I, Hall. I was in yeah, Taylor yeah, Hall, okay, uh-huh. and it was still the gallery, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. even though we were closed and yeah. getting ready for construction next door. I was hired just before the groundbreaking. Oh, okay. Was that the early then? Yeah, the I'm remembering wrong. Yeah. And then arrived the August after the May groundbreaking and spent the next two years preparing and working with the architects and preparing for the move into the new building. So I wasn't here in time to help with the design. No, but but you helped with the setting up house. Setting up house. And I vaguely remember now walking with you in the stairwells with hard hats on when we did a tour long before the place was finished. Uh, right. Yeah, so, yeah. So I had time to adjust. And as you said, it was a blank slate, yeah. an empty uh-huh. canvas. Yeah. I could exercise, you know, whatever judgment I had about how things should be installed, displayed, uh-huh. yeah. stored, uh-huh. arranged, and, and working with the staff to get that done. So yeah. in a sense, one was able to make it. Uh-huh what you wanted. Yeah, that's great. there was yeah. nothing there. Who has that opportunity in the museum <laughs> world, though? It doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So was there a sort of shakedown period where you had to get out the kinks uh, in the beginning, or no? I mean, all your systems were somewhat new, and something of the old museum was still there, but even so, uh, everything had to be reinvented, right? So. Yeah, and it was... You know, I don't recall anything aside from the novelty of working with, you know, a brand new structure. Yeah, and yeah. after some of the travails of housing the collection and trying to run the program in Taylor Hall and having very little change there since 1915 when it opened, Uh especially the storage issues. It was luxurious to move here. So it was initially very satisfying. Yeah, everything's state-of-the-art. I remember looking at it. I was at the Yale Center for British Art just before I came to Vassar. And the low center reminded me a lot, especially in storage areas, that kind of thing. Well, the architect paid careful attention to that. Yeah, he did, yeah, how late. So itself was based, in a sense, on the proportions of the Dulwich Picture Gallery designed oh, by oh, yes, yeah, Johnson. Oh, yeah. And those models were very influential on the Caesar oh, Palace. Interesting. The same lighting, natural lighting effect that you have in the gallery here. Same right. floors also. Actually. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I know you're working on a publication, so the question is, what are you working on and are you going to continue to do research once you're retired and uh, working out of your home office? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I yeah. have a home. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. yeah you're selling your house, yes. Selling yeah, house yeah. Right so I'm going to continue half-time uh-huh. for the next year. Oh, you are? Okay. After working on the collection of old master drawings here at Vassar, uh-huh. especially the Italian material, uh-huh. 
in preparation for an ultimate catalog yeah. of everything. Oh, I wonder, will there be a show, do you think? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, okay. I, it's, it's impossible for me yeah, to, say. to say. Yeah, be up to the new director. Yeah. And also we have different schools of drawing, so yeah, someone yeah. needs to do the French, yeah, okay, the yeah, European, yeah. etc. Yeah. before anything is quite ready. So that's my, as it were, soft landing from yeah. doing what I'm doing now. Yeah. And it requires no administration, uh -huh. and presumably none of the things that you'd rather someone else did at certain times. Yeah. You know, I can focus on research, but also I have a large project that's been percolating for over 30 years, which is the catalog raisonne yeah. of the drawings of Federico Zucchero, 16th century yeah. Italian artist. There are over 1,000 of them. Yeah, catalogs resonate, especially drawings, can be really time-consuming. I mean, my whole time at the Yale Center of British Art, my uh, boss, Anne-Marie Logan, was working on the uh, uh, Rubens Drawings Catalog, which is, of course, a massive <coughs> project, but you know, she worked on it for 20 years after that, before it finally came out. So yeah. hopefully Zakaro is easier to handle. But, uh, well, yeah. yes and no. I mean, as I said, there are over 1,000 drawings. I've been nibbling at it all this time. Yeah collecting the data, visiting collections, yeah. uh, etc. What needs to be done now is the actual uh, writing oh. of the work yeah. and organizing it and putting the ideas together yeah. that will accompany the, the catalog, the catalog yeah. itself. So, yeah. so I'll be basically tag-teaming the Vassar project and this bigger project. That kind of work, it must be easier now that we have email because I remember Anna Marie, you know, on the typewriter, the IBM selector, constantly typing letters to museums. Yeah. So, I mean, every day a stack of letters would go out and correspondence would come in, so at least you have email. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's yeah. made a lot of things easier. So have online collections resources. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's true. You can see that's been what's there. Yeah. For borrowing also, I would guess, for exhibitions, so that's got to be handy. So. Well, it is handy, yeah. almost too much so for yeah. some people because yeah. they tend not to make the effort to look at the original. Oh, uh -huh. They order uh, from the yeah. Land's End online yeah. catalog. Oh, they, they are. <laughs> yeah. So we get a lot of loan requests, yeah. I think, from people like that who just sum through collections. Yeah. So uh, any parting reflections, uh, maybe, or anything that we haven't touched on? Well, I mean, it's, it is at this point becoming real. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> parting reflections. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting here. Hopefully you're still thinking it's a good idea. You know, well, well yeah, you know, yeah. you have second thoughts at certain yeah. moments. And well, you've already hired your replacements. <laughs> <so. laughs> well, the impulse is still the correct one. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You know, you just have to adjust to a different relationship between you and this greater institution. Because uh -huh. yeah. I'll still be around. And yeah. I've been teasing people and saying, I have a money-making project that I'm going to execute, which is to occupy one of the park benches <laughs> here on campus yeah. and have a sign that says, I'll tell you a Vassar story for a dollar. <laughs> Yeah. And see how far that gets yeah. me in my retirement yeah. funding. 
Well, I think we have an oral history project that D.B. Brown is working where he talks to people. And I always wonder about those. Is that where you vet, you know, you do the memoirs that you always threaten to do to, to expose <laughs> the people that, that you wanted to expose while they were making a life miserable? But, uh, so thank you, James, for talking with us on the Library Cafe. Um, and just a reminder, the show that exhibits the uh, acquisitions that have taken place at the Francis Lehman Loan Center over the past 29 years or time here is on view through... September 8th, and it is called An Era of Opportunity, Three Decades of Acquisitions. So, uh, thanks.